You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Hannah Stitt. She is an intellectual property lawyer, and she is founding partner at Tectonic LLP. We're going to talk to her about the world of cannabis, particularly around the world of intellectual property. And as I think a lot of people on the program or have listened to this program probably know, this is a really interesting, slightly dicey area, um, mainly because of the federal legal status of cannabis. Getting intellectual property protection on things can be a little tricky. And we're going to walk through a little bit of why. We're going to talk about kind of the history and, and really how some of this stuff is played out and you know where we are and what's still kind of uncertain, still kind of vague, and maybe you know where how this could play out in different ways, both with federalization as well as kind of the current situation. So We'll get into this. There's probably a lot of, there's probably several hours of content here. We're going to try to cover it in, in this program, at least the high level pieces, but I'm excited for this. I love this kind of interesting kind of nuanced aspect of the cannabis industry that you really need to know if you're going to be running a successful cannabis business. So with all that, Hannah, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I love to talk and I love to talk about cannabis and IP. So I'm really excited to be here. You are, you are in the right spot. <laughs> yes. So yeah. let's, before we kind of dive into cannabis and IP and everything, let's get a little bit of your background. How, I guess, how did you get into law? How did you get in cannabis? Give us the story. Okay. I'm going to try to give it to you. Not too long. So I got into law, like a lot of lawyers, I guess, as a high schooler, kind of, I think I took an aptitude test. Isn't that kind of crazy? I took an aptitude test and they were like, you could be a movie director or a lawyer. I was like, Mm. "Hmm, interesting. So in college, I kind of tried out a little bit of both and uh, I decided that I could try to be a lawyer and uh, I I think I made a right choice. I'm very, uh, very inclined towards looking at how the law works as a body, um, as a system of power. So I was really interested in that. When I was uh, in undergrad, the reason I got into cannabis uh, while in law school was uh, cannabis as a as an industry to serve as opposed to just partaking because I was already doing that for a while. <laughs> um, the reason I got interested in this as an area to practice is because a couple of my close friends from college I found out had actually been caught selling MDMA and uh, okay. they were underage. And so they got the choice of going into the military or going to to juvenile prison. So when I was just learning about this whole process from them, and at the same time was happening in California was what we called prop, I want to say prop 219. Um, mm-hmm. It was to, it was our first attempt to make some sort of market in California because of what was going on in Colorado and Washington uh-huh. and Oregon at that time. And it actually failed. And when I was talking to my friends, I was like, wow, this has really surprised me. Like, why wouldn't you want to have an industry that is regulated and approved by the government, you know, less morally suspect when the, when the law says it's legal. And yeah. they were like, um, this is not good for our business model. 
And I was like, oh, wow. And it really was just click for me that like people, this is a business. Like it's not necessarily a a state sanctioned business, but it is a business that people are engaging when they're putting product into the market into consumer hands. And so um, in law school, because we were having legalization come up in other states, uh, it was pretty interesting topic for students in law school. And there was some organizing going around in San Francisco where I attended law school at UC uh, Hastings, which is now going to be UC San Francisco uh, <laughs> College of Law. And so uh, Matt Kuman, he, uh, he came, he's a, an OG attorney in this space, and he came into our law school and was looking for people to help him out to um, organize. So that's how I got involved in the cannabis industry as a law student. And really, it was just interesting to see where laws were moving forward and protecting people for the kinds of activities that people in my life had gone to, had to make big choices. You know, like the military or prison is a pretty big choice. Yeah. So for me, it was a lot of a kind of like an exciting place to be in the law, an exciting place to be in an industry that was emerging. And I say exciting because it was definitely a little bit towing the line of not appropriate. Like plenty of attorneys and law students that I interacted with at the time were like, this is absolutely not okay. You cannot try to provide services to people in this space. So uh, that's kind of like my activist, kind of naive, kind of interested in the, this is a new burgeoning area, uh, entrance into the space of the law student in 2012. Yeah. And I mean, I guess what, give us a little bit of a frame for intellectual property. I guess, how, how do you get into intellectual property? Give us a little frame of, you know, generally what is intellectual property kind of focused on? Why, I guess, kind of why does it exist? Like, why do we have this? And then, and then we can talk a little bit about how, how it plays out in cannabis. Yeah. So intellectual property generally is, um, is the counterpart to property law. Property law is the oldest form of law that exists in our American Anglo-Saxon tradition. It goes mm-hmm. back to William the Conqueror. So we've got over 2,000 years of property laws on the books. And so intellectual property is the, the other side of that coin where it's how can we get property rights related to things that are intangible and um, ideas, brands, processes that can't really be reduced very well to a, to a physical object is what's going to cover intellectual property. So I've always had an interest in this space and being in learning about the law in San Francisco. Um, there's tons of tech companies out there. There's tons of really exciting yeah. stuff going on. So at the same time that I was learning about the cannabis industry, I was very much being exposed to cool technologies. And so in law school, I actually um, have a concentration in intellectual property law. It's kind of like getting a major for a law school. Mm-hmm. And so I had these two parallel tracks kind of developing at the same time as I was understanding more about what my interest in the law was and also who I might want to be serving as clients when I became a licensed attorney. And it was interesting because I don't think anyone really saw my vision at first, uh, at least in terms of this, the, the teachers and really understand what I was, why I wanted to merge cannabis and branding. But the one space that cannabis companies actually do have a property right that's a pretty strong property right is in the trademark space. And once you have the government giving you a property right, it's really hard for the government to take that property right back from you. That's not really like the how the, at least before the Roe decision that came out in 2022, it, that really wasn't how decisions were made. It was like, okay, you've gotten a right, we'll give it to you, you can keep it moving uh-huh. forward. And so that's how I landed on intellectual property for the cannabis space is this, this acknowledgement that like from an, from an actual like activist civil rights kind of perspective, the intellectual property rights are the strongest ones. And uh, this is... This is pretty difficult for sometimes people to wrap their head around. But at the end of the day, like if you're a licensed operator and you're you're cultivating cannabis, like the government can come in and just like burn your crop. It doesn't really matter. You don't really like own the crop the same way that you can own the branding around the crop. And so this activism spot where it was like people are getting power in that space is how I really found interest in intellectual property for cannabis attorneys. And uh, interestingly, like the branding, USPTO has been issuing uh, trademarks in this space. The 
forever. Like the, mm-hmm. the oldest one is, I don't know off the top of my head, but plenty of companies actually have uh, branding rights that has existed since like 20, 2007, 2010, long before these state regulated marketplaces were really coming online. So that's kind of the the intersection between intellectual property and cannabis is that this is an interesting place where people can have a really strong federal right. I think the the thing I always like to think about is like the the reason we have this is I mean, we want to encourage people to invest, you know, do do the work, invest time, money, and energy to come up with ideas and concepts and brands, you know, and so they they're protectable, right? Like I'm not going to spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars building a brand only to have, you know, and someone else be able to just rip it off and sort of benefit from that, right? It's a, it protects sort of entrepreneurial spirit and efforts that people put into these things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just like you were saying, when someone is really developing their, their business right from the ground, they oftentimes don't have an actual product that's ready to go to market yet or something that they can hang their hat on in a warehouse full of labels or something like that. So protecting intellectual property is like you're saying, a way to keep that that nascent business uh, protected and start actually building its portfolio and whatnot, even before you've got a, a really viable product line existing. Mm-hmm. And um, what is the process in terms of if I'm just in any industry and I want to get intellectual property protection on something, what is the process that I have to do? Like, what are the hurdles that I have to clear or the work that I have to do to actually get that get that protection? So in the U.S., you actually are accruing common law intellectual property rights under state law just by having an idea out there in existence that you're attempting, like for for the trademark space in particular. Mm -hmm. If you're selling a good, then you are developing common law rights, which is actually pretty cool. Mm -hmm. At the federal level, copyright is issued from, it's actually couched in our constitution. So that is going to be an exclusive federal right. You can't have copyrights building at common law. Those will have to be registered with Congress in order to get those rights accruing. And then for patents, same kind of thing where it's it's found in our constitution. The patent rights do not accrue at common law, but you have to go through the system in order to get a registration for your patent. Back into the common law area is going to be trade secrets. So trade secrets, you can develop those rights at common law. And then you can also, there's state statutory provisions that uh, help protect trade secret that you are actually keeping a confidence related to your however you're making money off of that information. So trademark is uh, the one place where you can get federal and state and common law rights all accruing at the same time, which is why it's probably, you know, I, I, might, I might be biased, but I do think that trademarks are really one of the most important areas for cannabis businesses to be focusing on developing portfolios and protections for their brands and ideas. So in order to get common law rights, you just have to be out there with an idea selling something where people can be like, hey, that product is being sold by this unique seller. That means that you're accruing common law rights uh, at trademark. And then uh, for the state level, you can actually apply state by state. Not every state offers a trademark system, but I think at this point, most of them do. And if they do, it's probably going to be under the uniform trademark provision of statutes. So it's a pretty easy process. In most places, you just write to your, whatever the process is, either online or by mail. Some some states do do it by mail still. <laughs> That's how it's, it's interesting because like the state trademark rights are so important for cannabis businesses, but pretty much every other business out there is not at all worried about developing common law rights or state rights because they go for the federal system and you can just have a a right that's granted across the U.S. So you don't have to go uh, pick up six style state by state or territory by territory. Got it. And so it's really unique that this um, that this system exists still. And actually, cannabis as an industry has kind of re-enlivened the, the state trademark system. A lot of states are having to actually like put a few more employees into the yeah. uh, the Secretary of State Department. That's usually who uh, issues a, straight, a trademark on the state level. And so they're having to um, beef up their systems. You know, they're going from having like 
three people who did all of the business registrations and the trademark registrations to six people so that a couple can focus on different aspects of different registration types as more and more cannabis companies come into the space and are using this system. So the trademark system, it's not too hard at the state level for you to just simply fill out the application and submit your, your mark application. The difference between federal and state is going to be that the federal level, it's an entire process. There needs to be Oftentimes, I would advise people to do a clearance search to make sure that the name is actually available. Sometimes Google searches do pull up trademark registrations at the federal level, but oftentimes the Google system does not, it doesn't scrape the USPTO trademarks very well. So it kind of just depends if a third-party service provider got in there and got the information and that's populating the Google search. So we uh, like to do an actual clearance search through the registrations themselves to make sure that there's not another company that is too similarly branded or overlapping in a way where it would just like not make sense to go after that brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can actually give an example of that in just a yeah. second. So the state level is not too complicated. The difference there between the federal and the state, that's really important for people to consider when they're thinking about like, well, what can I do myself that I don't have to like hire an attorney to get done right now is that in the state system, you have to have your mark has to be in use in commerce already. There's no intent to use basis in any state okay. that I'm aware you of. You actually you have to be in the mark. It has to be actually yes. put in place. Yes. Whereas at the federal system, you can have an intent to use. You can be like, I'm in the idea phase and I know I'm, I'm really interested in this brand. I'm really interested in these kind of products to be sold under that brand. And you can actually go for an intent to use mark at the federal level, which is great for companies that are that are planning ahead for new product lines, things like that. But also great for people who are just entering business for their very first time. If they, if they think that they have a great idea and they know they're going to act on it, then getting an intent to use application can be really useful for them. Yeah. And so... Yeah. So the, they're like the systems are they're very much overlapped. They're designed to be in line with what's going on at the USPTO level, okay. which kind of gets us into the weeds of uh, different nuances in the law. Because yeah. uh, the state law systems are like in California, for example, there's just a, a quotation where it says, and the federal law is not authoritative, which means that we don't have to follow federal law. But it says right after that, like comma. However, it is very I can't remember exactly the phrasing, but essentially the gist is that, but we would like to look at the federal law. And if the federal law has an answer, let's go with that. That's okay. the summary, you know. Got it. So we're, we're going to tend to defer to federal law in generally. Exactly. So, yeah. Like it won't okay. be binding. We don't have to do it. But generally, yeah. we're, we would like people to look at federal law and tell yeah. us what the federal law is, is deciding. Because yeah. And that's from a law regulatory perspective, that makes a lot of sense because you don't want to have different kinds of situations happening under federal law in California versus state law in California versus common law in California, that's not really useful for people at the end of the day to not understand how the law is going to apply to them. Yeah. However, in the cannabis space with federal prohibition, we all know that, you know, is a giant wrench in the machine. Yeah. So having to so have talk to states us. look at it. Yeah. yeah. So t- talk to us, you know, given the status of cannabis being still federally illegal, how does that gum up the works or how does that change or impact how these different devices for protection kind of end up playing out in terms of the cannabis businesses? Yeah, that's a great question. And I want to answer a little bit historically before I move on to right now. What's interesting from a branding perspective, again, in the trademark world is that in the past, because we had federal illegality, there was a little bit of a need to kind of hush, hush, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, let people know what the product was that you were selling. And when you look at the historical brands that were seeking registration at the USPTO, and some of them were actually granted because examining attorneys at the PTO had no idea about the wink, wink, hush, hush language 
that mm -hmm. um, these applicants were using. Uh, so things like green crosses and medical symbols, lots of the use of the word green, Eden, herb, flower, those kinds yeah. of things were all yeah. very prevalent in branding. And it was a way to get people to see like, oh, you know, this is a store with a green cross on it. And they've got like a, an allusion to Nirvana in the name of the store. Like this is probably a place I can go in and buy weed. So those kinds of brands are no longer able to get registered at the PTO. And that's because the examiners have gotten wise to the fact that this is language that is letting you know that the brand is, is cannabis. Mm -hmm. And also just generally in, in seeking registrations, the uniqueness of the brand is a really important aspect. If the, because if at the end of the day, someone could be confused that the product that you're selling is actually being is actually being associated from a seller that's not you. That's it kind of just undercuts the entire purpose of having a unique registration system. So people who are trying to get brands right now through with words that are like classically used in the cannabis space, they might just find themselves getting what we call a 2D office action, which is where under section 2D of the Lanham Act, the PTO is like, this is too confusingly similar to another brand that already has a registration. So even if you were not a federally illegal project, which you are, yeah. um, we still wouldn't give you a registration because you're not unique enough. So it's interesting to see what kind of uh, brand development pressure points have been at issue in the cannabis industry as it's grown in the last, I'd say, like 20 years or so. And one of them is that we're having to move away from a lot of the kinds of classic, classic hints to consumers as to what the product is. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break to hear some words from our sponsors. And now back to our program. So now historically, I mean, there, there were companies that got things through the USBTO with, with these kind of traditional terms or traditional words. So, so they've got protection and what happens now? I mean, did they keep the protection or they have, have they lost protection, you know, because now the USBTO is onto this? Yeah. So great question. Uh, right now, a lot of these companies have continued to hold on to the registrations. And going okay. back to what I mentioned earlier, like once the government gives you this kind of protection, it's usually, you know, there's not a lot of incentive for the government's perspective to take it away from you. Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting that those brands have been able to hold on to their registrations. I think, unfortunately, there is processes, there are processes in place that people can challenge those those registrations as being invalid. For example, one of them would be a petition to cancel the mark. Another couple of uh, procedural options that came out in 2020, 2022, really, the, the law went into effect December 2021, but effectively just this year, is called a petition to re-examine or to an expunge a registration from the from the federal principal register. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's one of those areas where it's very juicy from an intellectual property attorney perspective, but very frightening from the perspective of someone who's trying to provide brands with strategy and planning for not only maintaining their portfolios, but growing them. Mm -hmm. And with some of these older registrations, and I think like, I can't even think of a really good example off the top of my head that has the word green in it. But generally, if, if someone just wanted to be messing with these older registration holders, like if there was any reason to go after them from a malicious standpoint, there are processes in place now for those registrations to be vulnerable because all you have to do is pay the relatively low filing fee of $400 Mm -hmm. And um, probably some attorney hours, or you could try it yourself and see what kind of a petition you're able to to put together yourself. But um, it's submitting a petition to the director of the PTO and saying, hey, you should look at this registration. We think that it's not actually a valid registration under the law. And if the PTO decided to take up that um, petition and actually look into it, there could be a chance that some of these really established brands could have their registrations taken away from them. Because the processes are only 
really a year old. I have, there hasn't been any decisions yet on any mm-hmm. of these. I've definitely seen some decisions on the petitions themselves, but I haven't seen any court appeal decisions on the decisions of the PTO on one yeah. of these petitions. So it'd so, be like a formal, formal way of kind of invalidating some of these, but you could also just go to market with something like go, you know, just copy their, you know, their, their brand and their name, go to market. And then, you know, they wouldn't be able to, or they, they would be less likely to actually enforce that because they would be worried that that it wouldn't yeah. it wouldn't get upheld. Essentially, yeah. I mean, it, I think it would be unwise to go to market with the exact same branding unless you were prepared that you would need yeah. to be spending some money to argue with them about it. Yeah. If you're going into that situation with the idea that you're going to be having to spend the legal fees to get that kind of thing, and also the years, because it, it could take a while to get these yeah. kinds of decisions through. But yeah, so if you know if the war chest is deep enough, that, that's definitely a viable thing that we might see happening. Yeah. Interesting. And so, so where are we today? Like how, how has this played out in terms of today when companies are thinking about products and branding, what's kind of the practical strategy and what are the considerations? How do people play this out given the state that we're in? Yes, that's a great question. Earlier, or I should say in December, 2021, we had a decision in this case in California called Wonderworks. And uh, there's only one or two lines in it that kind of screamed for my attention that doesn't seem to have really made it too far into the general news yet. But it looks like there's a decision in this Wonderworks case that if one aspect of your branding is on a federally illegal product, so, you know, really, what does that leave us with? It with like prostitution and cannabis. Yeah. Um, so if, if another aspect of your brand is totally lawful, but you're using the same mark across the two or three product lines, then that the illegal product line can actually taint the validity of your brand on those lawful products. And this is brand new case law. This is in California. It's I haven't seen it in any other state out there yet. And this case hasn't been on appeal. So there's been no higher level decision by the Ninth Circuit about this matter. So it's an interesting kind of scenario where we find ourselves in like the strategies we were giving to people pre-2010 and like from 2010 to 2014, 2014 to 2017, a lot of what the attorneys were doing, which which was very valid advice at the time, is that like if you have a cannabis brand, if you're plant touching, um, why don't you try to get your website registered for online sales? You can that's like class 35 or goods and services in class 35. If you and if you had like an education component of your of your brand, you could go for educational services in another class. So it's like you're picking up rights that are kind of tangential to the actual plant touching product, yep. but you're still picking up those federal rights. And so with this Wonderworks case, it's kind of like, oh no, like did this judge accidentally like, did this on purpose? Did they know what they were doing here? Or did they just accidentally say something and you're like, oh my God, this could literally cripple the industry. So a lot of these brands that we thought that, you know, they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were following their attorney's advice. They were doing all the things they could to pick up these rights at the federal level in the avenues that are available to them. Up until like about seven months ago, that was a, a good strategy. And now I'm actually looking at clients and being like, if you are creating a business from scratch right now, or if you're in a new product line and you actually have an ability to pivot, like you're not too far deep into it, that you can make some choices about branding. I'm not telling people it might make sense to actually really segregate the branding between the federal products that are illegal and the federal products that are illegal, because this wonder case just kind of cuts the legs off of prior strategy. Hopefully what will end up happening is that someone will challenge this case and we'll get the law clarified in our favor as an industry pretty soon. But at the same time, it's, it's really expensive to try to, you know, 
sue someone as a matter of principle just to change the law. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Know? Like, not always a great a, business choice. We need to so. take a, a fund. We need to collect funds across from people across the industry to find some case to push through exactly. so we can get this thing clarified right. uh, on yeah. behalf of the industry. Interesting. And so where does that play out? I mean, if this doesn't go to a case, doesn't get clarified, and it's there on the books, what's like, what does it mean? Are that we we're now in limbo for some period of time, or what? How does this practically play out in terms of making business decisions? Right. So I just want to throw out there for everybody that in lawyer world we're always nervous about everything. So you know, take that <laughs> grain of salt, please. <laughs> Maybe it's a chunk of salt. So as legally speak, I guess I have to answer it kind of like a business practical answer and then a legally speaking answer. Yeah. In California, if you are a California business or you're developing your business in California. I think that this WonderWorks case is not great. And I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of other attorneys who are listening to this podcast and are going, I don't agree with her. Like, what's she talking about? I need to read that case. Like, I hope that you out there read it and are like, I didn't, I didn't interpret it that way. And I'll be like, excellent. Okay. Wonderful. Great for us, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so take that information too. That I'm just one person's opinion. But um, I'd say in California, it makes sense at this point to, to try to be segregating out product lines. Like if, if you're able to sell a new product under a specific related brand that's not your main brand that you already have federal rights in, I would say do that. And it's kind of one of those things where like different businesses have different strategies that work for them. Some brands I see, it's like multiple product lines and they have, it's all the same brand. There's really no difference. Like it's maybe like a flavor different between products. Mm -hmm. Other brands, they have entire like, you know, branding schemes and like all of their, their main brand is not really, it's just kind of the umbrella happy family brand. They don't necessarily sell a lot of different product lines under that main name. Mm -hmm. Um, That second option I think is probably the better way to go for right now with this Wonderworks case decision. Luckily, I will say that another decision that came out in May, 2022. So the Wonderworks one is December, 2021. And May, 2022 is this AK Futures versus Boyd Street distribution. Mm -hmm. Um, This is an Arizona case. So like I said earlier, California, Oregon, Washington, Arizona are all inside the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. So this is a Ninth Circuit case and it's discussing Arizona law, but in it, the Ninth Circuit does invites the possibility of nominal non-federally lawful use products invalidating the accrual of trademark rights. So it's kind of a arcane way of saying that this Ninth Circuit judge was like, we didn't have this question before us and we can only answer a question that's been posed to us. So too bad the too bad the, the people in the case didn't ask us, like, can you use a non like a nominal non-federal use to invalidate a whole product line? And the judge was like, I pretty much would have said no, but you didn't ask me, so I didn't have to say that. Right. <laughs> so I, can't, I can't officially say it. Yeah. <laughs> Just the joys of a lawyer in legalese. Oh but, my gosh. Um, I love it. Right. I'm sure everyone's ever there, like, pinch me now. Like, this is terrible. So uh, it's interesting to me that the Ninth Circuit has kind of opened up the door to say that like some of these lower lower court decisions probably don't make a lot of sense, especially with the way they're trying to invalidate existing rights based on just a total new interpretation of the law that is not actually couched in anything authoritative. So hopefully we'll get some clarity in the future about this. And hopefully WonderWorks ends up being this obscure one-time thing that doesn't really matter too much. But in terms of being cautious and forward planning, if you are able to start segregating out your your product lines from your main brand in a way, like like you still want to have the connection, right? Because that's what the the goodwill that you've garnered for your yeah. business is like really paying off of. Yeah. But if there is an ability to start to pivot a little bit, it's probably a good idea yeah. just in case things do not go well with that. Uh, sort of separate out. Yeah. Yeah. Create, create some protection space between the, the brands. How And how is this going to play out? I mean, if so you've got these 
cases, you've got protections in place, maybe they get invalidated. And then if we go federally legal, if, if we reschedule, deschedule cannabis, and now it doesn't have this illegal status, like, do those things get put back in place? Or how, do, how is this, like, is, how do, what's the retroactive aspect of some of these things if we end up in a federally legal state for cannabis? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I don't have an answer. I think that there's going to be different people with different opinions. What makes sense to me, just based on what's been happening, what I see in California in my practice, is that I think that we're going to have a federal legalization where all of a sudden you weren't, all of the rights you're occurring before the date of federal legalization won't matter. So everyone's going to have their rights occurring on the same day. That's what I think is going to happen. Part of that is be reading the tea leaves. And I can't even point to anything authoritative that I can get that information from for the audience to be able to like read it themselves. But that's my gut instinct. And what's hard there is that everyone's going to have evidence of having used their brands before that date of federal legalization, right? So it's like we're going to have plenty of evidence on the record that like brand A was had their first use in commerce on the product in April 2011. And we're going to have a bunch of other evidence of the second brand that it like in, let's say, June 2017. But it won't matter if they just all of a sudden have their rights occurring on whatever day of ends, uh, ends federal prohibition. If uh, if the legislature's legislator that uh, ends, ends federal prohibition is like really on it and really brand savvy, then we might get lucky and they might have some amount of information for us to go forward on based on the statute itself. But I think it's one of those things that's going to take a little bit of time. Once prohibition ends, we're going to have to have some discussion like in the in the process of like new laws being commented on by industry groups and individuals and lawyers. Yeah. This will probably take a little bit of back and forth in that process of making more specific rules before we get a real clarity on how to deal with um, the fact that brands were lawfully operating under states markets before the prohibition ended. Is there any other kind of industry precedents for this? Like any anything else that kind of has been through this kind of situation that anyone can point to and say, okay, well, alcohol had this thing, you know, is, is there any way to kind of predict how it might play out? Yeah, I think alcohol is the one that comes to mind. But unfortunately, I haven't been exposed to a lot of academic like treat us in the area of, of this being these specific issues being a problem for alcohol, mostly yeah. because the prohibition was such a short period of time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Like it was just a little blip. So yeah. everyone didn't really get into the weeds of these issues because they were also focused on other things. Right. Um, yeah. Well, so, we didn't have state legal. I mean, it wasn't like it was legal in the States, but a federal legal, like there was some exactly. interesting twists and turns for cannabis. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And then like, it's interesting to see, like just there's this, uh, there's an attorney in the International Cannabis Bar Association that I'm a member of. His name is uh, Robert Amikos. He's actually a, um, a professor, I believe, of intellectual property law. And he has this great law review article, so probably boring for most people to read. But generally, it's, a, it's, it's, it's encouraging people to challenge the PTO's interpretation of it, the Lanham Act, because the PTO has really inserted this lawful use and commerce requirement into the plain language of the statute. And it's not in the plain language of the statute, which is where we start when we read the law, right? We're like, what does it actually say before we need to get into like how it's being interpreted by judges and jurisdictions or agencies like the PTO. And um, the PTO is going to probably have a hard time relinquishing its power. Like it feels like politically in the last couple of years, the the PTO is is kind of backtracked a little bit on on things that it was allowing to happen in 2014 through 2019. It's not the same now. So it's really a political issue with this like giving of federal rights related to cannabis plants. And it's unfortunate that it is a political issue, right? Because 
that means that it's really not stable in a way that other areas of the law can be stable. So yeah, we'll have no, to see what happens. Hannah, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about Tectonic, what's the best way to get that information? The best way to find information about my quirky self would probably be on LinkedIn. And my LinkedIn handle is forward slash Hannah Stitt, which is H-A-N-N-A-H-S-T-I-T-T. And then our website is tectoniclaw.com. That's T-E-C-T-O-N-I-C-L-A-W.com. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, I'll make sure that those links are in the show notes and everything. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter.